At number 16, in the spirit of Soho Mural, partially obscured by Karl Marx's bushy hair, is the much-decorated naval officer and man with the most outrageous name on the list, Admiral Sir Cloudsley Shovel. Born in 1650, Shovel lived in Soho Square for a few years and was a man of extraordinary achievements, but is mostly known today because of the circumstances of his death in 1707. One night in bad weather with poor visibility, Shovel steered his fleet of ships onto rocks near the Scilly Isles, leading to the biggest single loss of life in British naval history. As a consequence of this, the Longitude Act was passed, establishing a body whose purpose was to find a reliable way to accurately navigate at sea. This disastrous night is also commemorated on the Admiral's huge tomb in Westminster Abbey, but this is a man whose career took him from cabin boy to Admiral of the Fleet, so to permanently associate him with this one unfortunate incident seems a little unfair. To find out more about Admiral Sir Cloudsley Shovel, I met up with Elaine Galloway in the churchyard of St Anne's on Wardour Street, just as a few thousand children arrived, hence the background noise. Elaine works as a tour guide in Greenwich at both the old Royal Navy College and the Royal Observatory. Because I'd never heard of anybody called Cloudsley before, the first thing I had to ask her was how did he come about that bizarre name? The name, I wonder whether it might have had three syllables, Cloudisley, because he's named after his grandmother, whose maiden name was Cloudisley or Cloudsley, and she spelt it with an I in the centre, so Cloudisley. And he's from the on. era where spelling was a little bit And kind he's of from the era where spelling a little bit flexible, although as it is on the mural, in fact, because on the mural he's a shovel with one L. Yeah. And uh, he's more usually shovel with two L's. So it's not it, Chevelle, it's not the, it's it not the bouquet be, bucket it thing. It could, could have been, he could have been Cloudisley Chevelle. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. And, and who was he? he? Looks like Samuel Pepys in the... Yeah, as you know, he's kind of slightly obscured by Karl Marx. But what you can see very clearly is what I think must be called a full-bottomed wig. Mm. Or if it isn't, it certainly should be, because he's wearing a very large wig. And he is an admiral. He was born in Norfolk. And there are quite a few kind of misunderstandings about his life. One of which is you often hear that he, he, came, he was of humble origin. Yeah, he started as a cabin boy and became well, a master of the fleet. Or exactly. Something. Well, he certainly became admiral of the fleet. But his family were not uh, particularly humble. They were gentry of Norfolk. And he seems to have been either friendly or even related to Admiral Mings, another quite nice name. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, in the way they did things, Mings, he, Mings became his patron and so took him on board at the age of 13. And he was taken and uh, he appears on the ship's roll as captain servant. Right. And that was a very common thing. You know, they, they started them very young. If you naval wanted patronage to be, thing. Yeah, naval yeah. patronage. Okay. If you wanted to be a naval officer, you certainly were supposed to literally learn the ropes from a very early age. Like an internment, not intern, not internment, inter internship. <laughs> internship, exactly, apprenticeship. So yes, he went to sea um, at the age of 13 as, and he's on the role as a captain's servant, but he would have been doing all the jobs of, of one of a typical sailor. He would have been climbing up the rigging, he would have been learning rudimentary navigation. And that's the way things were done. And from there, they progressed through the ranks. And Cloudsley seems to have progressed through the ranks fairly swiftly, in fact. He was clearly quite a clever chap and a personable young man, you could say. He was a captain by the time he was 27. 
we were almost constantly at war during his whole naval career with someone or other, you know. <laughs> we were always fighting up the Dutch initially, then the French and the Spanish. And so Cloudsley managed to be always in the thick of it. And by all accounts, he was quite a good tactician and a brave to the point of stupidity even, you know. And so he got himself noticed. And that was certainly the way to progress through the rank. And he also became an MP, which yeah. sounds weird if you're always away at sea all the time. It, it does sound weird, but of course the Navy were quite keen to have some of their people in Parliament to put their point of view, etc. And in 1695, I think, he was made a rear admiral. And at that stage, they suggested he might want to become an MP. OK, I did read a quote, which I'm going to fire at you now. This is from the History of Parliament Trust website. And it says, um, But the crucial factor in his favour was the Navy's control of one of the seats through the proximity of Chatham Duckyard. Thus, it could be stated as fact in the newsletter of 19th September, over a month before polling day, <laughs> that the town of Rochester have agreed to elect a Cloudsley shovel. So yeah, basically it was just stitched up, brilliant. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think it's the way things were done in those days. I can't imagine that he was there in his constituency office fighting the good fight for the people of Rochester. No, although he was certainly fairly active during his relatively short time as an MP. He so was he was inactive. the Navy's man in Parliament, basically? He was one of. Oh, one of, OK. One of. <laughs> and he became very, very wealthy indeed. He did, yes. And was this through being an MP? I know he married well, as they yeah. say. Is it a combination um, of these no, things? No, I suspect not so much through being an MP. Because he was always in at the action, naval warfare-wise, he got a lot of prize money. You know, when they capture an enemy ship, they would actually share out the value of the ship and its contents. Just tell me that again. So there's a system, if you were in the Royal Navy, mm -hmm. so you're an arm of the British state, if you capture an enemy ship, you took the spoils? Yes. It didn't go to the government? I think the ship may have gone to the government, but certainly the, the spoils, as you say, went to the ship's company with a very elaborate ratio between who got what down to the, the lowest cabin boy, you could say, you know, or the, the lowest ordinary seaman. They all got some. But the lion's share went to the officers and in particular to the commanding officer, you know, the captain. That's really interesting. So he would have got very wealthy through that. And then, as you say, he married pretty well. He was always someone who saw the, the main chance, I think. And one of his patrons was Lord Narborough. And when he died, Cloudsley married Lady Narborough. So he married a rich widow. And so, yeah, I think that will be where the, most of his wealth came from. What's his Soho connection? Because so far you haven't even mentioned well, Soho. Well, Soho, yeah. Well, actually, I'm not sure whether he inherited a house in Soho through Lady Narborough or whether he bought the house in Soho once he became an MP so that presumably he could walk down to Parliament, probably with a rolling gait, having been yeah. at, uh, <laughs> in the sea for most of his life. And it's Soho um, Square, wasn't it? And it's either, depending on what you read, it's either Soho Square or possibly just into Frith Street. It, one of the other things he's very well known for, if he's known at all, is the way he died. And the Soho Link possibly comes into its own more after, after his death than it does at any time during his life, I would say, probably. It was 1707 and he came back from, I think, a not terribly successful episode in the Mediterranean. By this time he was Admiral of the Fleet. And he's and 57 so he had, at this stage. And he's right, 57 yeah. years old. He has 21 ships in his fleet and they're sailing back to England. Then we get to the bit where there's such a lot of uh, 
different opinion about really. The weather was poor, so they didn't manage to see the sun or the stars to actually accurately fix their latitude very well. They were taking soundings, you know, all the time. It's a very regular thing. The fleet would stop and they would lower down the, uh, the sounding rope to see how deep the water was. And they thought they knew their position. And still in bad weather, Cloudsley Shovel then said, right, let's continue, let's take a northeast bearing. And then within hours, they hit the rocks of the Scilly Isles off St Agnes. And immediately, I think Cloudsley's ship, the association, was the first one to hit the rocks and sank almost immediately, apparently, with the loss of all hands. And three other ships hit the rocks as well. And of the ships that, of three of the ships that sank, there was only one survivor. So how many deaths is that all in all? Depends. Again, that's another thing that there's a lot of argument about, but possibly as many as 2,000. Certainly somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 lives lost in one night. It's counted as the, the biggest naval, British naval disaster of all time. Some of the rumours about the death aren't particularly... Well, the one I heard is about him hanging at one of his junior sailors. You said he was a very personable fellow, it doesn't sound yeah, like that. It doesn't, and it's a story that it doesn't, um, historians generally discount this story. It doesn't fit with how he, how he was. He, you know, he wasn't an authoritarian commander and he was well liked. But the story is, yes, that a, that a common sailor said, um, I don't think we're where you, you think we are. And, uh, you know, without further ado, he was hanged from the yard arm, you know. <laughs> but it doesn't sound, it wouldn't have been the done thing at all, really. You know, they had other things to worry about rather than holding a quick court-martial and hanging someone, I think. You yeah. know? So it's a very unlikely story. The other rumour is he survived, crawled onto a beach and then <laughs> had his ring stolen. Mm -hmm, is that mm -hmm. anything, any truth in well, that? Well, again, that's a story, but all of these stories only appeared some time after his death. This story is that Sir Cloudsley reached the beach alive, crawled ashore, but then a Cornish woman, you know, from the Scilly Isles, found him, saw his diamond ring, this priceless diamond ring, and smothered him in the sands and ripped it off his finger. And then 30 years later confessed to this dark deed on her deathbed and handed the ring to the vicar that she was confessing the story to, who sent it back to the person who'd given it to Sir Cloudsley in the first place. That ring has never never been heard of since, in fact. Bit, yeah. So, no, it's um, a good but unlikely story. What happened to his body afterwards was very strange. Yeah, well, what happened to his body, I think, possibly wasn't so strange for, at the time. He was, he and his two stepsons, were immediately... Sorry, these, these, the, these are the they're sons, the sons of, of Lady Lord Narber. La yeah, Lord and Lady Narber. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, two young boys, really, I think. The bodies were buried immediately on the beach at St Mary's, I think, but certainly in the Scilly Isles. But, I mean, this shows how well thought of he was. Queen Anne insisted on his body being dug up and brought back to London. At, at Queen Anne's expense, the body was embalmed. And then, actually, this is where the Soho comes in again, because he then lay in state in his Soho home for, I think, almost two months. And um, people came to pay their last respects. And it was only after that that he had a very, very grand and well-attended funeral in Westminster Abbey. Again, paid for by, by the Queen. And he has so. a very grand tomb there, doesn't he? He does, a slightly ludicrous tomb, sadly. He's portrayed he, as a um, 
I think it's described as a Roman general, but he's wearing a, a quite a revealing toga, which seems to show <laughs> is, is quite, you know, a big tummy pose. 57 year old yeah. tummy, you know. Yeah, so, uh, and, but he's still got his um, full bottomed wig on at least, so he is recognizable. But it's, an, it's not, I don't think it's quite the portrayal he would have, he would have liked. Really. No. And the, the disaster did kind of tarnish his reputation, didn't it? Yes, it did. And, and for that I blame, but I shouldn't, because she's a, she's a very good author and a very nice woman. Darva Sobel, the author, she wrote a book, I think in 1995, called Longitude, which I'm sure some of your listeners have, have read. I've only and, got two listeners. Oh, uh, right, OK. Well, I bet they've both read it. <laughs> yeah. She wrote a book called Longitude, which gives the story of John Harrison, the man who... Um, built the clocks that finally solved the problem of longitude. Darva Sobel's book starts talking about the, 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 the 1707 Silly Isles disaster because the idea being that that really concentrated the public's mind on the idea that they needed to, to solve this problem of how to find longitude. But then the Navy and astronomers come out very badly in the book as being a bunch of idiots and kind of narrow-minded, snobby, so they didn't rate John Harrison, who, who really was from humble origins. And so, yeah, Cloudsley is sort of thrown in with, with that lot somehow, you know. But for the time, he wasn't a bad navigator. And he certainly doesn't seem to have been in any way a kind of cruel captain or, you know, or, or one who was despised by, by anybody. Far from it, you know, he was the hero of his time. Mm-hmm.